As we read these uh, next four passages, I just want you to hear in these four passages the contrast that Scripture gives us between good and evil, between the ways of God and the ways of Satan. Scripture makes clear that there are only two ways that we can go in our spiritual life. We can go toward good or we can go toward evil, and there is no middle ground. And these texts, I think, will make it clear why that is the case. And they will show us how evil is actually what destroys us and how good is what gives us joy and life and health. And so Sharon will come and read for us from Luke 8, and then Abby from Deuteronomy 30, Cassie from Proverbs 8, and then Jackie from 1 Peter 5. So I welcome you up now. Luke 8, starting with verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and found they came to Jesus, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Proverbs eight thirty-five and 36. For whoever finds me finds life, and adapts favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour.
And we pray that we would have eyes to see God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for those words that are just read. God, I pray that they would um, find a place within our minds, within our hearts, Lord. Would you open our minds now, I pray, to understanding these words of yours. God, that we might be built up, that we might glorify you in every way. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage before us this morning, Luke chapter 8, is the story of the man who was freed from a whole legion of demons. If you've been in the church very long, I'm sure that you're familiar with this passage. It has very vivid imagery, does it not? A man filled with a a legion of demons, and these demons then rush into the pigs who go and crash down into the water and drown. And what I think this passage is supposed to do for us more than anything else is I think it's supposed to show us how we cannot trifle with the things of God. It shows us, I think, how there is a great gulf between how we often think of the things of God, how we often treat the things of God, and the true worth and significance that the things of God actually have. And I include my own self in this problem. That so often I can treat the the things of God, the truth about God, the way I'm to obey God, I can treat it as a very mundane and everyday sort of thing. And yet the reality is that I think we see clearly in this passage is that ultimately there is nothing that is more worth giving our time and attention to. There's nothing more worth filling our hearts with as a great treasure. There is nothing that is more worth living and dying for than the truths that are here expressed in God's word. And the way that this passage this morning does that, I believe, is by showing us on the one hand a man who is filled with demons. A man who really was as bad as humanity who could possibly get. And on the other hand, we have this picture of a Jesus, a Savior, who is fully righteous, who is fully powerful. And then we also have a third figure in this story. We have the townspeople who see the man who was delivered from these demons and who become terrified and ask for Jesus to leave them. And I think it's this third group of people, these people who stand in fear of Jesus after seeing what he has done, that I think we actually have the most to learn from. You see, I think these people saw something clearly about Jesus Christ that we far too often fail to see. So often it's easy for us to come to Jesus simply as a friend, simply as someone who loves us and cares for us, and we can forget the great power and the great holiness that he also has in store. You see, the the reaction of these people where they actually ask Jesus to go away because they're so afraid of him, stands in stark contrast to the crowds that we read of immediately after this passage. So in Luke 8, verse 40, it says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. You see, Jesus had just done some miraculous work somewhere where people were so terrified, they were so scared that they asked Jesus to leave. 
And meanwhile, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, these people don't know what has just happened. They don't know what happened either on the lake or what happened with the demon-possessed man on the other side of the lake. And they're all just kind of glibly waiting for Jesus to come back. And again, all too often, that is our attitude. We, we welcome Jesus. We say we're a fan of Jesus. We know that Jesus really loves us and cares for us. And yet we do not recognize his vast power and his vast holiness. There is something glorious, beloved, about coming into the presence of God. And the person who thinks of it as a transcendently wonderful and joyful experience is certainly thinking about it rightly in many regards. But coming into the presence of God is not merely joyful or wonderful. It can also be terrifying. And I want us to see that in just a couple of places beside the Gospel of Luke here. So the first place we see this is in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, and there's a, a beautiful description of the Lord's presence that, again, many of us are perhaps familiar with. That the Lord has a throne that is high and lifted up, and the train of his robe is filling the temple Seraphim are flying all around the throne and they're covering their eyes and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And again, you would think in that moment with Isaiah in that throne room of God, seeing the glory of God, that he would be overjoyed, that he would recognize, yes, this is what I was made for, to behold this beautiful and glorious God. And yet, what do we see Isaiah say in that moment? This is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His first words are not, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. His first words are, Woe is me. Other translations say, mourn for me because I am ruined. Or they simply say, oh no, I am doomed. This is what happens when people come into the presence of a holy God. Yes, they may worship. Yes, they may rejoice. But before any of that happens, they stand in fear. They feel, they know that they are about to be struck down dead because of the holiness and greatness of God. And so when Isaiah says, woe is me, when he says, oh no, I am doomed, that sounds a lot like those people who witnessed Jesus commanding those demons to come out of a man and then begging Jesus to leave. They recognize that they stand in the presence of deity. They recognize who they are dealing with. And they know they cannot stand in his presence. The other example I want to take us to is the example of Israel at Sinai. So in Exodus chapter 19, Israel has just crossed the Red Sea and they're coming up to Mount Sinai. And Exodus 19 tells us that the first thing that God spoke to Israel when they came up to Mount Sinai, was that they would be his treasured possession among all the peoples and that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
So right away, they come into God's presence and they get this great encouragement from the Lord that they are going to be the Lord's people. So they have great reason for rejoicing, right? When they come into God's presence. But after God says this, it says that the mountain was covered with a thick cloud. Exodus 19.16 says that there was thunder and lightning and there were loud trumpet blasts all around the mountain. It also says that God descended on Sinai in smoke and fire. Exodus 19.18 says that the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And right after that, The Lord gives the Ten Commandments and then hears the people's response in Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, these people had an accurate understanding of the greatness and the holiness of God. And that accurate understanding did not lead them to run into God's presence haphazardly, thinking, yes, I finally found him. No, it caused them to stand back in fear, saying, God, do not speak to us lest we die. And so again, beloved, we can see that there is something right in this response of these people who witness Jesus and this demoniac. When they said, please leave from this place, they knew that they could not stand in the presence of such holiness and such power. There is something that is staggering and terrifying about being in the presence of God. It can be so staggering and so terrifying that it actually makes more sense to run away from him because of his power than to simply run into his arms as if he were some kind of warm, cuddly bunny. God is more like a lion than he is like some friendly house pet that we may have. And as C.S. Lewis famously said of Aslan, He is a good lion, but he is not safe. We should fear the Lord for his power and for his majesty. And as we read through the Gospels, we always find that Jesus does have a large crowd around him. He has the 12 disciples that he has chosen, but outside of those 12 disciples, he also always has a large crowd that's very interested in his teaching. But the nature of the crowd throughout the Gospels is that they are a bunch of people who really like Jesus and who are happy to be around him, but who do not understand the cost of discipleship or what Jesus truly came to do. They are not disciples of Jesus. They are simply fans. They are observers. They are ones who like to see the miracles and what Jesus can do, but they are not yet ready to submit to him. Jesus is like that commander of the Lord's armies that Joshua met just after crossing the Jordan. Where Joshua asked the commander, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the commander says, no. So Jesus 
is not merely for you. And Jesus is also not merely against you. He is for the Lord. And he will always do what the Lord calls for him to do. Whether that is scary for you, or whether that is welcoming to you. In John chapter 6, which records events that are in a very similar time frame to where we are here in Luke, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then he goes across the Sea of Galilee. Again, just as we've read about here. And there's a big crowd after that feeding of the 5,000 that waits for Jesus to come back on the other side of the sea. Again, just like we see in Luke 8 verse 40, which we already read. Eventually, when Jesus doesn't come back quickly enough, they all decide, okay, we're all going to get into boats and we're going to go after Jesus. And so they all go after and find Jesus. And here is what Jesus says to them. This is John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to them there? He says, you're following me, not because you believe that I am the son of God, because you believe that I have all authority, but you are following me because I fed 5,000 with loaves and fishes and you had your fill of the loaves. As he goes on just a little after this, he describes to them that food that endures to eternal life that he told them to eat. And eventually he comes to the point where he says that that food is that you must eat his body and you must drink his blood. And then John 6 verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, beloved, many are willing to receive Jesus as a good moral teacher someone who's a great friend or a great comforter, but much, much fewer are ready to receive Jesus as the Lord, as the Messiah, as the one with all authority. There is a a coming to Jesus that is not a true coming to Jesus. There is a, a coming to Jesus that is a coming to a man who simply loves you and simply wants what's best for you. And this sort of coming to Jesus is troubled whenever Jesus asks you to do anything that is hard for you or that is uncomfortable for you. Whenever it seems like he is employed by someone else, but he's not employed by you. But there is also a true coming to Jesus. And the true coming to Jesus is recognizing that he is God. Recognizing that he does have all authority, that he is holy and just and righteous, and that he is worthy of all your devotion. So it is that the people in the area in the area of the Gerasenes recognized. They recognized the deity of Jesus. They recognized that in the presence of Jesus they were standing on holy ground. And they either had the option of submitting fully to Jesus Christ or of getting him out of the town. But they could not keep him there and treat him as a trifle. 
as someone who would conveniently fit into their lives and come into their homes and share friendly meals with them, chatting about small things. No, Jesus would be received by them as Lord, or he would not be received by them at all. Now, I say all of this because this is the point of verses like verse 37 in our text this morning, where all the Gerasenes ask Jesus to depart. But really, all of this is just setting the stage for the larger point of this passage, which is what I want to get into now. And the the larger point of this passage is to answer the question of why, why did the Gerasenes want Jesus to depart from their area? What is it that they saw in him? What is the nature of Jesus that should make us fearful, that should make us treat him as Lord and not as a trifle? What had he done that was so frightening? And so let's back up just a little bit in the passage now and actually look at what Jesus did for this demonized garrison man. The passage before us has all the markings of a battle scene. So on the one hand, you have a a pure and an innocent and a good Jesus. And on the other hand, you have this man who is filled with devils. Even in the very start of the passage, it says that in verse 27, it says, When Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. So just picture that, that Jesus steps onto the land, and as soon as he steps onto the land, there is this man who has come out to encounter him, who is full of demons. It's almost like the the Greeks landing on the shores of Troy or the Allies landing at Normandy, France on D-Day. There is this one party who is coming out of the water and there is this other party on land who is prepared to meet him. And the battle lines are even more clearly drawn when we hear about this demon man and he is described in some detail for us. So verse 27 says that he has worn no clothes for a long time and he has not lived in a house but among the tombs. When it says that he lived among the tombs, think about death and the power of death. That is what this man loves. It goes on to say that he's been chained and shackled, but he is broken loose from these chains, given the power of the demons inside of him. And when he breaks loose from the chains, he flees into the desert, away from all civilization, away from all people. And so we see the lifestyle of a man who lives his life part of the time in the deserts and part of the time in the cemeteries among the tombs. In verse 30, Jesus asks him his name, and the demons reply, Legion, for many demons had entered him. A Roman legion was almost 5,000 soldiers. This is the enemy that Jesus is facing, a man filled with 5,000 demons. Now, we don't get a full description of Jesus in this passage, but of course we know from the rest of the Gospels what Jesus is like and what he represents. In a word, you could say that Jesus represents everything that is opposite of this man. Where this man is given over to violence and paranoia, Jesus was a man of peace, both inside and out. Whereas this man loves death and tombs, we know that Jesus is the Lord of life. 
Whereas this man flees from civilization and doesn't even wear clothes or comb his hair or do any sort of civilized thing. Jesus is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and his kingdom is the most beautiful of all kingdoms that there ever has been or ever will be. Whereas this man is filled with demons and controlled by them, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And no one directs his steps but God alone. And so we see that these two people exist on opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. There has never been a truer battle between good and evil. And what this demon-possessed man shows to us, ultimately, I think, is how often we trifle with sin. Because this man shows us nothing else than sin taken to its fullest extent. So when demons come into this man, we know that demons are servants of their Lord, the devil. And demons exist to bring about sin in a person's life, to bring about death and destruction and decay. You see, we so often can think of sin as some small thing that gives pleasure to us. We can often think of sin as something that's kind of risky and kind of fun. Indeed, we humans are so fallen that oftentimes the whole pleasure of sin to us can simply be the adrenaline rush of seeing what we can get away with. It is staggering to me sometimes the depths of depravity that people will go to, not because the depravity itself is enjoyable at all, but because they see what is off limits. They see what is daring. And just the very fact that it is off-limits and daring makes it more exciting, more interesting. The example of romantic affairs, I think, is a perfect example of this. Someone can get drawn into an affair and can destroy their family and they can destroy the rest of their life because of an affair. But not because the person they're having an affair with is so wonderful or is worth committing to in that degree. No, the reason the affair is so enticing is simply because it is secretive, because it is underground. And just for that very fact, people will go to extreme lengths in order to pursue sin because of that adrenaline rush that we get. And yet, if that same person were to marry the other one who they have an affair with, they would find that that relationship would fall apart within moments. Simply because the underground nature of it would no longer be there. In short, we all know that playing with sin is like playing with fire. But we so often think that we can get away with it and not get burned. The, the fun of sin, we think, is the, the opportunity that we have to play with fire. Would God help us for our foolishness and blindness? Now, God often is merciful in letting us play with fire and not get burned. But just look for a moment at the example of this demonized man and see where every sin ultimately leads. And ask yourself, do you really want to play with this fire? Do you really want to dabble in the lifestyle that this demoniac fell into headlong?
I mean, sure, sin may seem fun and enticing, but do you also love the stench of death? Yes, sin may be sweet for a short moment, but do you really want to embrace the inner agony and violence and rage that comes along with sin? And yes, sin may have a certain forbidden energy to it, but do you really want to find yourself isolated and alone and cut off from all civilization? Because that is where every sin ultimately leads. The path of sin may seem sweet, but it is a path of death and destruction and despair. And even if a sin may not seem to lead to such a dark place, be sure that whatever step you take into that sin, you are going down the road to death. Just as we read from Proverbs 8, 35 and 36 this morning. Whoever finds me, that is the Lord, righteousness. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is the demonized man, beloved. He loved death. And we, when we fall into sin, we show that we too love death. Twice in the book of Proverbs, it says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Beloved, we need to have eyes to see that sin is not just some innocent pleasure, but it is the path of death. And so let me exhort you this morning that in whatever measure you're granting small permission for sin in your life, whatever measure you may be making peace with sin, let it stop, beloved. It will be hard in the moment, but it will give you everlasting joy. It will deliver you from death. Do you really want to go down the path of death? Romans 13 verse 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. No provision. Not some, not a little. You make no provision. Romans 8 verse 6 says, The mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Beloved, we all want life and peace. None of us want death. And yet so often in our actions through our lives, we actually go down the path to death. Which way do you want to go? Which road do you want to head down? The road to Christ-likeness? Or the road to this demon-filled, garrison man? There is not a third option, beloved. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Again, these are not matters to be trifled with. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that you've probably heard before. It's from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. 
It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Beloved, this is the weight of spiritual things, and this is who we are. And this is the choice that God gives us. Whether we go down the path to death and destruction and demonization, or whether we go down the path to life and fullness of God's Spirit. And so the question that this passage ultimately poses us is, do you want to be like this garrison demoniac? Or do you want to be like Jesus of Nazareth? Do you want to be the crazy person that loves death? Or do you want to be the enlightened person that embraces life? Death and life cannot mix. They must not mix in your life today. They will not mix in eternity. And so what can we do, beloved, given this stark choice that is before us? Either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of life. Now surely you want to choose life. Surely you do not want to die and be cut off from civilization as this man was. And if that is the case, then what you must do, beloved, is you must cry out to Jesus for deliverance. Again, this garrison man did not even have the sensibility to cry out. And yet Jesus still delivered him. Such is the nature of Jesus' grace and his power. Notice that this man could not have been cured in any other way. They tried to put chains on his hand and shackles on his feet to in some measure restrain his sin. But even this would not work because he would still break free. And so it is with your sin. Try to chain yourself down to a chair and guess what? You will still sin. You will find ways in your heart and in your mind to give yourself over to sin. They had already kicked this man out of society, letting him live in the deserts and in the cemeteries. And yet even this consequence was not enough for him. Beloved, if you think that some punishment or some consequence could be so great that if only you were to have it, then that itself would free you from sin, then you are mistaken. There is no punishment that can come our way that will somehow make us intelligible to stop sinning. Jesus, not even speaking about a demon-possessed person, says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Beloved, do you want to be free from your chains? There is only one way. You must cry out to Jesus for deliverance. He is the only hope. He is the only way. Just look at Jesus' absolute authority over demonic spirits in this passage. Jesus commands the unclean spirits to come out. And in verse 28, it says, The man replies with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Jesus doesn't listen to the demons in that case. 
And so the demons go on in Luke 8, verse 31. It says, and they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. You see, the demons know the absolute power of Jesus. They know that the only option they have before him is to beg for mercy. They cannot bargain with him. They cannot stand in his presence. And so they simply beg and they ask if they can go into some pigs. And so Jesus relents and allows them to go there and they go into the pigs at once. And why Jesus even granted this, I'm not really sure. Perhaps he was trying to show people the deadly nature of demons as he watched how they even kill pigs. Perhaps there was some punishment that the garrison people deserved that would lead them to lose their pigs at the hand of Jesus. But in any case, we see that these demons go into the pigs and we are given one more example of just how destructive sin and the powers of Satan are. That even in pigs with no self-consciousness, no ability to hate themselves or think of anything clearly, that even they commit suicide when, pig, when demons go into them. Beloved, this is the nature of the devil and darkness. That it would encourage us even to kill ourselves, the rejection of all of God's purposes and all of God's desires, that we would take our own lives. This is the ultimate thing that Satan desires, our death and our destruction. And so Jesus speaks a word to the demons and the demons go. And then you can see the power of Jesus in this transformed man. Luke 8, verse 35, it says, Then people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Beloved, do you see that Jesus alone has the power to rescue you from sin and from the devil? No matter how vile you may be, no matter if you have 5,000 demons in you, Or if you think you are squeaky clean, Jesus has the power to rescue you and redeem you and transform you. Beloved, if you're here this morning, whether you have committed what you think is the unforgivable sin, or whether you think you are fine, know that you must come to Jesus for deliverance. And so in closing, we see what made the garrison people afraid is not merely the powerful work that Jesus performed. But what made them afraid was how he exposed this enormous gulf between good and evil. How he made so clear to the garrison people that when they were in his presence, they were standing in the presence of God. The ultimate reason why humans hide from God why we want to run away from him, why they would ask him to go away, is not merely because he is powerful and we are not. That was true even in the Garden of Eden, and yet Adam and Eve walked with God in much joy and peace. The reason why we are afraid of God, the reason why Isaiah was afraid, why the people of Israel were afraid, the reason why these garrisons were afraid is because God is righteous and we are wicked. 
We all know the truth in our bones of Ecclesiastes 12, 14. It says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And because we know that, we fear. We all know that our deeds are evil. And so ultimately, beloved, if you want to stand in the presence of Jesus and not fear so greatly that you ask him to leave, here is what you must know. You must know the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, when that happens and we know that we stand in Jesus Christ, in his righteousness, then suddenly we can be in the presence of God and we can remain there long enough, even while trembling, to be transformed by him and to experience the joy of his presence. So, beloved, that's what I invite you into this morning. I invite you to know the fear of God, the holiness of God, the power of God. But I also invite you to know the enormous pleasure and privilege of knowing God because Jesus has taken our sins away upon himself. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that though you are all-powerful, that though you are holy and righteous, God, that you have invited us into your presence because you have made atonement for our sins by your own blood, by your own life. And so, Father, would you help us to tremble before you? But would you also help us, I pray, to rejoice before you? And church, I now welcome your prayers of confession and your prayers of petition to God.